I am Ben Doc Askins, the psychedelic science war storyteller, and this is the Anti-Hero's Journey Podcast. Hey everybody, Doc here. If you're enjoying the podcast and you want it to be possible for me to continue to make it, then I'm going to need you to go to my store at antiheroesjourney.com and buy my audiobook and my ebook in one of the many translations available, or go to shop and pick out some of my stuff t shirts and hats and pet bandanas and bikinis and scented candles and all sorts of nonsense, all the things you could ever want and never need. And get 10% off with the code, all caps, FRIEND10. Go to antiheroesjourney.com and use the code, all caps, FRIEND10 to get 10% off anything that you could ever want there. I appreciate your support. Thank you. I love you. Goodbye. What's up, antiheroes? It's me. Hi. I'm the problem. It's me, Doc Askins, coming back at you with another Q5 podcast episode. This one was a little bit different, and I want to give you a heads up. We're going to talk and have a little bit of a frank discussion at certain points in this episode about suicide. So if today is not your day for hearing a podcast where suicide is discussed, please go listen to another one. There's lots of great podcasts out there, and I don't want you listening to anything that you aren't prepared to listen to. Having given you that warning, I want to introduce the podcast guest that I brought on for another Q5 episode. We decided to throw this one together on the fly because he's a busy guy and I'm a busy guy, but we managed to get the stars to align so that I could interview Dr. Lincoln Stoller, who has his PhD from the University of Texas at Austin in theoretical and mathematical physics that he got back in 1984 when I was just a bouncing baby. And then he did some postgraduate work at the University of California in Berkeley in the same subject. He also is a counselor a clinical counselor in psychology and has done a great deal of work in math and in physics and then in the soul and in the psyche. He is also a mountaineer having gone to the International School of Mountaineering in Switzerland back in the 70s. He is a PADI certified rescue diver and a private pilot and a whole lot more than that. And the reason that I'm bringing up his background and some of his history is because he's going to say some things in the podcast that are potentially controversial. And I'm fine with that. But I want to give you the heads up that it's okay for us to disagree with each other about a whole bunch of different things without hating each other. The chances are pretty good that even if you disagree with any of the things Dr. Stoller says, it's not because you're more experienced or more intelligent than he is. That doesn't make you wrong or make him right or vice versa or anything else. I just want you to sit up straight and pay attention if you're going to be listening to this particular episode. Otherwise, you can go check something else out. And I hope, if for those of you that are going to hang in there and listen to this one, that you get something out of this podcast. Let her rip! What's going on, Anti-Heroes Journey podcast listeners? Coming at you with another interview podcast with my new best friend, Dr. Lincoln Stoller. We're going to have a conversation and we're just going to see where it goes. I sent him in a message on LinkedIn. We talked for 30 seconds before this and I pushed record. And now we're going to have some fun and see what happens. 
So welcome to the podcast. Do you want me to call you Lincoln? Do you want me to call you Dr. Stoller? What, uh, oh, what no, are Lincoln's your... Lincoln's fun. Lincoln, Lincoln's Lincoln, fun. Lincoln. Okay, fantastic. So let's see. You're coming up on a big anniversary tomorrow, right? No. Tomorrow? Not that I know of. Let me know. What is it? 15 years ago tomorrow, you smoked salvia divinorum for the first time in a hotel in San Antonio with three psychologists. Am I getting that right? Yeah, that experience was quite amazing. Very dark, very negative. But I really understand suicide now because I think I can fully, there's all these levels to suicide, you know, ideation, taking action, feeling depressed, many ways. But in that experience, I reached what I felt was the final suicide stage so i would have killed myself no questions asked if i was stuck in that reality but i couldn't because i was it wasn't the physical reality and it didn't last long but i feel i can i don't know i I feel i can talk above any person who has suicidal ideation i can tell them where they're going to go and i can understand where they'd go you know, if the, I could even go as far as saying, if you really feel like that, I completely understand your desire to kill yourself. So that was an interesting experience. I didn't expect it. You know, Salvia is supposed to be the wise teacher. Well, you know, it was wise, but it was a, a two by four in terms of teaching. It's not what you get in any book. And it is similar to, uh, actually, so since you have a military background, it is similar to an extreme hellish, you know, physical experience, which uh, usually gives people, you know, PTSD. But it's hard to have PTSD with a psychedelic experience unless you really fuck up, you know, and and get no support and go off the rails and have some psychotic experience. Um, so it was great, sort of. It was, it was great. It, it felt like you, you know, you looked into the abyss and the abyss looked back. It sounds like. Oh, it punched me in the face. <laughs> yeah. 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 It didn't just look, yeah. Well, now when you look at someone, you know, in your therapy practices, who's acutely or chronically suicidal, it sounds like you've got an intensely different perspective than maybe the average clinician. Yeah. I mean, I don't know because I've had the average clinician training, which I feel is insipid, and it doesn't get anywhere close. I mean, if if I was talking to a suicidal person, I would be right next to them. I would say, what the fuck is really happening in your head? I wouldn't sort of, you know, get these contracts of, you know, don't hurt yourself and stuff like that. Try to get to the bottom of the bottom of the bottom of what's going on. That's obviously what they're trying to do or wish they didn't have to, but are. Anyway, so, yeah, I I don't have many people like that. I have, and I've never had anyone actually suicidal on me or who's killed themselves all in my practice or outside. But I've had people who were very depressed and self-destructive. And I think that is in that realm, sort of. Yeah, you you mentioned that the the sort of experience that you had has some analogies to, you know, combat stress and post-traumatic stress. 
but it sounds like maybe in a, a converse way, not post-traumatic stress so much as like there's terms get thrown around like post-traumatic resilience or post-traumatic growth. Does any of that well, that's interesting. connect? I haven't heard those, but I, I can, yeah. I, I mean, I, I have a lot of experience as a mountaineer, which is really interesting. It's very similar to psychedelics. It's an altered state experience. It's an extreme and often unpleasant experience. People don't understand why climbers climb. It's not to have fun. Well, that's the reward, but it's, I know. Yeah, why do you do it? Because it's there. Well, it's, it's hard to say. It's to suffer is the reason. It's why a penitent flagellates themselves. You feel better afterwards, that's for sure. And sometimes you feel better in the process. But it's interesting that in that space of extreme sports, we find a lot of ex-soldiers who are trying to recover the extreme experience they had somewhere. And it's clearly not a negative experience they're trying to recall, although everyone else would think it is negative, being in a firefight, but some sort of sense of resilience. I remember talking to an army ranger who said that, you know, in the heat of battle, we have complete respect for our enemy, you know, they are not adversaries to us physically. They, I mean, it's very hard to explain. You know, they have complete respect for their adversary. You're not, there's no anger or hatred involved. It's, it's just some sort of transcendent experience. And of course, they'd kill them in a minute because that's what you'd have to do, but it's sort of transcendent. And so that is similar to mountaineering in its transcendence, and it's similar to psychedelics in its altered state. And so the question of resilience and meaning, and this is the point. In the psychedelic space, nothing makes sense. And that's the essential importance of that space, to get out of what makes sense and get into what's real. Because reality doesn't make sense. The sense is something we lay on top of it sometimes. What, so, what do you think? Go ahead. Sorry. No, I, I, I was, I was uh, about to ask you to reel me back in. <laughs> well, I was going to ask you, what do, what do you think compels us to go to the mountains, to go to war, to go into psychedelic spaces? What is it about being a person that, that throws us into those pursuits? Well, you know, it's a different answer for different people at different levels. I think the most clear-headed person is looking for themselves. And the least clear-headed person is looking to satisfy their needs and doesn't quite know what they're getting into. You know, you hear similar stories from veterans as you would hear from cancer survivors. And the story is often, at least the ones who survive, as a story of resilience and meaning. You may not have known you were looking for that at first. Like a lot of my therapy clients, they don't exactly know what they're looking for. They have an underlying sense of disquiet and dissatisfaction. And it's been ongoing, and maybe they've been chronically depressed or intermittently suicidal who knows like i say it i think it's almost amusing to have a suicidal thought to to bring it up you know when you're feeling like shit and you're depressed you know say to yourself i want to kill myself and then laugh at it because it's, <laughs> yeah, yeah it's just yeah, such yeah. an overreaction and it's always an overreaction i mean that's almost what ptsd is defined as an overreaction so I think healthy people are always looking for meaning. It's healthy to look for meaning. 
And when you look for it, you open this sort of Pandora's box of, you know, human nonsense that goes easily to darkness and struggle and strife and historical, you know, like lineage problems. They could be cultural, racial prejudice or hatred or, you know, religious animosity or just the this, the little microcosm of our family. It's so typical that siblings are, you know, at each other's throats and no one's parents are sufficiently supportive. You know, this is sort of the microcosm. And then we create this in our society. And, you know, we get Big Brother and, and Donald Trump and, and you know, the, the mean, Donald Trump is like the mean Uncle Sam. <laughs> and people, some people love it, you know. What do you... What do you what have you found to be some of the most meaningful ways to move from meaninglessness to meaningfulness? Ways to do it? Yeah, you know, like war war's one, mountain climbing's another, certain, you know, psychedelics are another, psychedelics but are another. reliably that, meaningful. Yeah. Well, you know, I I think counseling should be reimagined as a transformative process rather than a, you know, silver bullet for your you know, daily problems. And it should be an educational process. I'm also a sort of advocate of real education as opposed to state-sponsored, you know, socialization. So, you know, growth, mentoring, mentoring can be a great experience. Yeah, in, uh, I have to, I wrote this book called The Learning Project, which was sort of answers or addresses your question. At some point in my life, this was around the year 2000, I looked back and said, why did the people who succeeded or who I felt succeeded, succeed? What did they do right? How did they get to their position? Some of those positions were sort of exalted and you couldn't exactly figure out how they got there. So I went, I decided to go back and ask them. People whose experience I hadn't, I hadn't been in contact with, but I hadn't known to ask at the time. And I thought, you know, this, this could be a book just about, you know, exceptional people talking about their bios and that was not enough. So I wanted to talk about uh, it to middle-aged people who were still struggling to build themselves. And that was not enough. So I also wanted to talk to young people who were just encountering their life and their questions and ask them all the same questions. So I divided the book into three groups, young, teenagers, middle-aged, 30s, 40s, and uh, seniors, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. And I asked them all, you know, how did you learn and what did you gain from it? And, you know, why was it important? And these were picked as unusual people to begin with. So I knew I wasn't going to get just sort of bingo on Wednesday night thing. And it was very interesting. The interviews like were conducted over a decade. Most of these people I knew, at least the older people were my mentors. The younger people I didn't, but I could relate to, had some contact with. And, you know, they gave three different answers to your questions. The young people basically said, I throw myself into the world. in as rich and opportunistic way as I can find meaningful. The middle-aged people, it's hard to summarize everybody because, you know, these were deep spiritual questions to 30 
unique people. But I summarized the middle level as saying, we need to learn to love ourselves. So you can imagine the first year, it's like sort of like the fool's journey. So here you are again, right? You know, first you throw yourself into the world and then you learn, if you can, self-respect, resilience, self-love, which has got to be the root to anything you offer anyone else. And then the older people were kind of, they were kind of bemused and reflective, spiritual in a way that they said, well, you know, you try not to do evil in the world and you try to be constructive and enlighten people. And that was their answer for their own personal meaning. And I thought that was a great summary. So I wrote the book and I'm amused that very few people read it. But, you know, that's kind of a marketing thing. It's too long. Publishers wouldn't take it. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, it's let me bizarre. let me do the marketing thing real fast then. So your website's mindstrengthbalance.com and then the learning project is on the website for free. You sent me a chapter with a it was a young at the time man named Dave Williamson who was a combat medic in Iraq. I was stunned by how much he and I have in common down to some of the details there when you sent me that particular chapter. And then I started looking through it quite a bit, which was when I figured out your uh, Salvia Divinorum anniversary was coming up. I'm not psychic for everybody out there that's listening or whatever. You know, you put that in the book and I just remembered it <laughs> just to clarify that. But you interview some some incredibly interesting, well-known people and then some incredibly interesting, not well-known people throughout. And I think any of my listeners that can read should go to your website and read the entire book start wherever you want it seems like and you could just track out through the network of all of the different chapters relating art and science and wrestling and a whole bunch of different categories that you sort of sort out by topic and by age set and by personality you interviewed neil degrasse tyson and banksy the street artist and forget who well, else banksy. was on this list nobody interviewed yeah banksy, sure banksy adjacent yeah. everybody's right. banksy adjacent and nobody's banksy which is some of the fun part of of all of that story right but i'd love to hear you expound on the book from your perspective now having written it i think everybody should go read it but I, I just printed. started to dip my toe into it this morning and i want to finish it as soon as i can well that's the point it's free online it's buried in the education section of my website called the learning project it's free online as a hypertext that you can click through it's also printed and it's a digital book too. It's not, I didn't, I didn't recite it. I, I would have a hard time reciting other people's verbal presentation, but there are a number, if you haven't seen them yet, but there are a bunch of, uh, almost a dozen of the recorded interviews online. And there's, you know, I have to, I have to digress for a moment. I have a lot of experience with brain training, neurophysiology and neuropsychology and there is an underlying aspect to all this, spirit, presence, resilience, that's neurological. So some people are just wired in a hair trigger way. And in fact, you know, PTSD is often something that it, it creates a hair trigger reaction to situations that require a broader 
encounter, a more sedate encounter. And this tuning of your brain is neurological. You get pushed into it by events and trauma, certainly, but you can learn it, train it, and to some extent see it through various kinds of brain training, which most simply, in this very simplest sense, is like meditation. It's self-reflection. It's separating yourself from your process. So I'm now asking all of my therapy clients, and I, I am remembering your question, and I'll get back to it, about the book. I am telling all my therapy clients to look into brain training as is available through various cheap home devices in the two to $400 range and to try to educate them on why they would want to do this and what it will feel like when they do, because it's very subtle. It's like growing up. You don't actually notice it happening. You just find yourself different after you do it. It uh, is like putting on a pair of glasses. Well, no, that's, that's too dramatic. It's more like, it's just like waking up feeling better tomorrow. You don't exactly know what happened or why. It's just like irritations don't bother you and positive thoughts are more prevalent. And you don't know who to give credit to because there's no one to give credit to. It's just the way your brain is rebalanced. Why did I digress? Because it's important. Well, it's, it sounds like 1% better for 100 days is 100% better. It's That's kind right. of That's a way right. of parsing That's it out. Nice. Yeah. yeah. So back to this book. The book wasn't a question as to what people do to grow and improve. As you mentioned, I asked traumatized people and mentally disabled people and physically disabled people, people of all cultures, races, genders, because I didn't really know. I didn't want to prejudice the answer with any one of those genders, races, religions, cultures. And I wanted to see what came through through them all, through the ages. And the, the biggest difference was age, right? So the young people were the most resilient. You could say ignorant in a factual sense, but, you know, also inspiring, definitely inspiring. And the middle-aged people were, as you'd think, sort of self-absorbed in their profession or their self-identity. And the older people were reflective and disengaged and more in the mode of offering. But meaning was always personal. And, you know, to summarize the whole project and to summarize life in general, you see, this is so, this is, this is almost criminal to reduce life to a sentence. But, you know, to learn to love yourself was the sentence that came through it all after you know, a lifetime of mentorship and studenthood and 10 years of research and uh, 400 pages of writing to learn to love yourself. And that was told to me by a middle-aged black woman who was a biologist, gay, and now she's transgender. So this makes her of nothing like myself, who is none of those things. I'm not a biologist. I'm not black. I'm not transgender, gay, or whatever. But that's what I liked about this book. It really cut through all those levels and got down to that explanation. So what is it when a person who's so different from you tells you 
that you need, they need, and we all need to learn to love ourselves. What does it mean? I don't know what it means. I really don't know. And the more I think about it, I'm not sure I'm getting any closer to it. But I try to tell that to my clients. And the ones who are struggling the most seem to be struggling with that. You know, the ones with addiction and self-harm. I mean, addiction is a form of self-harm, I believe. I mean, it's partly coping, but when it becomes a problem, it's harming. Alcohol is a toxin. There's plenty of other toxins, right? It's a kind of self-harm. Uh, yeah, I mean, I work with people who, who who find as many toxins as possible, right? I mean, it's typical, you know, snorting, shooting, drinking all at once. You mention in portions of the Learning Project book that you were a somewhat precocious individual in the, you know, younger stage of your life that you were kind of moving out on your own by your teens, traveling to meet new mentors and, you know, learning about science there. It seems like, you know, you broke things out into these age sets. It reminded me of the Maasai tribe in East Africa. I spent a little bit of time with them and they break their society out into the junior warriors, the senior warriors, the junior elders and the senior elders. And you just kind of parse that into three stages where they've got four, but it it seems very similar. And it also seems like maybe you are a bit ahead of the curve on each of those stages from an outsider's perspective, looking at the book that may have led you down the path of writing it. But what's your own perception on your own story in that regard? Hard to say exactly, but I do agree that I always was pedaling. I was pedaling forward and I was unsatisfied. And it's funny, you know, the things you blame are often the things you end up crediting. So I blame my mother for ignoring me, and that made me want to go out and connect with people. And then I was dissatisfied with the inadequate connections people were offering. So that was kind of my whole life's motivation connect and deepen in every encounter. And it's pretty easy to go beyond what people are offering. I was never so overt and social as to be a performer. I'm not sure that's really authentic. I don't know. I'm not a performer. So I always felt I needed to do more to show myself or get myself known or get a get a reaction. So, you know, like in high school, all those sad and pathetic attempts to make connections with women to girl there were girls and i was a boy oh so frustrating oh and then you've got you know your erection constantly it's almost cruel the way it's it's been organized biochemically (laughs) you're so unprepared for this and society is so unhelpful and i would say that that you know that contributed too you know it, it made me I guess, angry, you know, anger can be a great motivator. It made me want to connect, to understand and be unsatisfied. So I would walk around in eighth grade carrying, you know, copies of Dante and other books, because I wanted people to know that I didn't want to read Johnny Tremaine and Little Home on the Prairie. I thought that was offensive. And people laughed at me. You know, I I tried to do various things. So I I did push ahead even as a young person. And I was also helped by the disfortune, misfortune, of being somewhat an only child because my siblings were 10 years and 12 years older than me, which made them, made me irrelevant to them. You know, they weren't going to fight with me. They weren't interested in doing that. So I was kind of alone. And then then I had this sort of negligent mother, not negligent as in absent. She was absent. 
she was emotionally absent. She did what she could, but she couldn't do much. So, you know, it formed me into a person who was always climbing, metaphorically and physically. And that's where I found climbing, physically, mountaineering, to be rewarding. Because now you're with people who have to be real. Because they're holding your life on the end of the rope. And you got to trust them. Sometimes you don't trust them. Then you, uh, you know, the, the consequences are yours. No one else's. Your teacher is nature. And nature is a stern teacher, you could say, you know. Not completely indifferent, but almost. Yeah. I mean, that, then you get spiritual. You know, do you want to talk to the trees? Yes, I do want to talk to these. I, I, I talk to all the trees. I don't presume they answer me. They don't answer me. Although once I did get an answer, I squeezed, squeezed really hard. I wanted to hear a voice speak to me. Oh, on two, two occasions. So the first occasion was, you know, 1980. I was doing some spiritual training. I wanted to hear God. So I, God said something. And I don't know what God said. But I clearly know. What do you it. mean you don't know? He said something, but you yeah, don't know? I, yeah, because it really was, it was just an illusion of, of, of interaction. And that's what I was looking for. I don't know what they said. It's like, eat your lunch or something. <laughs> and then the second one was, oh, when I was making psychedelics from plants in my neighborhood, which I had been told was possible. And it is possible because the chemicals are, are, are common root hormones, but they're not pure and they're not all for human consumption. So I poisoned myself. And that's when I had the second voice, which said to me, what the fuck are you doing here? <laughs> or, or it didn't quite, it wasn't quite as hostile. It said, what are you doing here? You know, you're in the wrong place. And I was having, you know, that was a toxic experience, a physically toxic. Did you answer them? Like, did you explain yourself? What were you doing? I, there? I sort of did. I sort of said, I guess I made a mistake. You know, that's how you learn. But that's also how a lot of people die. So I decided that wasn't, you know, that a lot of, those witch ointments are very toxic and you're not supposed to play with them for good reason. Yeah. I'm unsurprised <laughs> that witch ointments are toxic, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, it's funny. I don't know what the witches were trying to do. And I don't even believe in witches, but you know, the herbalists are the out, out there herbalists who are doing psychedelic toxins. I mean, some people learn to manage these things. I've talked to uh, people in, you know, Eastern adepts of Eastern religion who say they've learned to master datura, which is highly toxic. I mean, I, I touched it a little bit just to see where the toxic level was. You know, enough of that. I, I didn't need to go there. With my ignorance, <laughs> that would be a bad combination. Okay. So, but datura is a beautiful plant. If you want to talk to plants, it's a great place to start. These huge bell flowers that are fragrant as hell. Strategic Navigators reduced my income tax bill by over 50%. These guys save entrepreneurs anywhere from 40 to 60% on their income taxes. Click the link in the description to schedule a call and see what these guys can do for you. If you enjoy paying as much as possible in taxes, then just ignore everything I just said. You know, you mentioned a bit about being the youngest, you know, being a decade or so behind all of your older siblings and being angry at your mom for some of what sounds like a lot of loneliness early on. And then in your, you know, your Salvia experience, you also describe some pretty intense feelings of being alone, like the suicide versus anti-suicidal line that you wound up walking there. What, what are your thoughts on how to 
address the simple fact of loneliness that we all experience? I'm still working on that. I think a couple answers, have kids and be really good to them. Cause that makes, I like that good. answer a lot. I've got four. Need, so I, yeah, I like they that need answer you. a lot. And so you could be a real hero, which isn't entirely healthy, but at least it meets the need of feeling needed. And it puts you in a very educational point of view because you have to learn to disengage because to be helpful, you can't be cloying, you know, helicopter mom. That's not simple either. how to do that. I think the other answer is getting involved in loving relationships. Mm, Wait a minute. Let me back off because we all want loving relationships, but I think the only thing you can do is give a loving relationship. You can't expect to get one. It inevitably becomes a combat experience. I, I hate to say it, but so many people, almost everyone, Almost everyone's romantic relationships turn into combat experiences. Very few are, you know, perfect relationships. And that's how you learn to find love is by battling for it, you know? So I'm becoming a therapist. I, I, I encourage everyone. Of course, we all are therapists. You know, we think we are, but to be a real therapist you have to put your needs aside. That That's my job. I have to put my needs aside. It's, of course, impossible to fully put your needs aside. But to try to live in somebody else's shoes as authentically as possible and to understand their needs and suffering, that's educational. That's why I consider my therapeutic profession as a continuation of my education. I hear you saying... In addressing loneliness, there are these sort of poles of, you know, giving maximally. Like that's what, you know, making a child and then raising them involves is this maximum effort of giving. But also this difficult balance to strike of self-denial and no self and stepping out of the way in being a therapist And then that there's this sort of battle in the middle in love relationships to try to navigate. And we kind of fall off the horse to the left and then fall off the horse to the right. And every once in a while we get to stay in the saddle. Yeah, it sounds like you stay in the saddle. sounds like your relationship is, you know, two people on the same horse. For a, I think that's because nice I married case. up. That was all that that was more than anything else. Was I? What does marrying up mean? What up where? Uh, she's just at a, a level above mine that you know stays committed at a level that I just try to keep up with. Okay, let me say that too. I think that's another big buzzword for me: commitment. Yeah, people are. See, this comes to mountaineering too. Mountaineering was all about commitment to me. Making connection with people was all about commitment. Marriage and love is all about commitment. And I think people aren't, they don't recognize how committed they need to be. You're not here to have a good time. You're here to grow into a better life form because, you know, human beings are not very good life forms. I mean, just look around. They've been slaughtering each other by the millions. That's not a very good life form. It's not even very- For nothing. It's it's stupid. It's almost stupid. Or maybe it is stupid. And so, you know, improving that is why we're here, I believe. And it's not an easy job. And it's not going to 
necessarily make you happy. And you're going to carry the baggage of your own suffering and you're going to deal with it and repeat it and, you know, recreate it reasonably in your attempts to solve it. And I do. And I think my clients do. And the lesson is that you have to find higher guidance. I don't know what that is. We call it religious, you spiritual, inner strength, inner guides, uh, whatever. I don't care what it is. You know, find it anywhere. Find it in extreme trial or love. But at the point you find it, you'll find it something you have to give. It doesn't rely and it doesn't assure reward. And it's just, you could, it sounds Buddhist or Christian or whatever. I mean, that I think that's where these religions are trying to tell you to go, to sacrifice for the betterment of others. And I think that's the only real answer to addressing loneliness. But it's not the answer most people want. They want satisfaction. And it's not quite satisfaction. It's the satisfaction of serving, you know? Sounds to me like you're saying that on a balance, give more than you take is a way of trying to address some of the history of our nature that's red in tooth and claw. Is that an accurate thing that I'm picking up on? I think so. I'm not satisfied, but I feel like, you know, in the panoply of gods, I'm channeling a particular one. I'm not channeling the highest deity of you know samadhi i'm channeling the service deity you know ganesha or something and so I, I i can't say it's right for everyone but it seems to be my path a path of service and creativity and a struggle so who would want that i mean maybe some people would but you know it's been my most rewarding answer sometimes you choose the struggles and sometimes the struggles choose you right something like that Oh, what do you think? Well, what would it look like to channel the highest God? You you mentioned that, and I was like, what, what would that even look like? Well, my experience with psychedelics, and you've probably had it too, is that you can get to these places where you just don't know what's going on. It's just too big. It's too, I mean, it's like awe-inspiring. And I've been to those places, and I remember I said, you know, this was like multidimensional and multi-textural and multi-sensory, and I was completely overwhelmed. I couldn't see it, feel it. It was like traveling through infinity. And I said to myself, I will, I will remember. I will remember. And that's the only thing I remember is saying, I will remember. Right? Because yeah, yeah. it was in an ineffable experience. I have nothing to hang it on. All I can remember is being overwhelmed, and that's all I can say. You know, contacting the ultimate is never going to be within any intellectual domain that you can talk about, I don't think. The the things whereof one cannot speak, thereof one must be silent, the way well, Wittgenstein ends Tractatus well, sort well, of idea or something Not else. necessarily, because we don't always, we don't know what he was talking about. Right, because he know, said it. Because, yeah. I mean, it's an experiential thing. And like my young people, the young people in the book are the most inspiring because they're the ones who are willing to take the leap, leap of faith into chaos. And I do encourage people to 
learn to manage chaos. Chaos is the root firmament of fertile experience. It's never going to be organized and neat. Because if you're trying to, this is the nature of learning. You're trying to outpace yourself. You're trying to go to somewhere you've never been. That's why, you know, a firefight or a mountain, and I've been buried in avalanches and fallen off mountains, and those have been epiphanies. They could also have been fatal. But I managed to make them not. They were smaller avalanches and safer falls, but they were big. They were still big. I mean, way big. Just was, not was it a big was it a big enough avalanche you didn't know which which way was up? Oh absolutely. Oh, it was very funny. You know, we saw this cloud coming down the mountain, and then all of a sudden the cloud came over the hill and it wasn't yep. a cloud anymore. It was huge. Yeah. yeah. And then we were and then I was buried. But as in in both of my extreme experience, I was laughing all the way. Yeah. I've often la- I've often laughed yep. while falling or being buried. And I've decked twice important. on two long whippers climbing and, uh, yeah, laugh the whole way to the bottom. You, yeah, because you can't get traumatized if you're laughing. I don't think that's – so, you know, that's my prescription for enlightenment. Go uh, kill I yourself I want to hear more about laugh. this, like, trauma-proof I laughter. I like that idea. Tell me more. Tell me a joke, Doc. Well, I don't exactly understand it. Another experience is – if you know anything about mountaineering, often you're climbing on stuff that's not very stable because, you know, mountains are mountains, you know, frozen dirt. So climbing on ice, ice is, is, is typically unpredictable. You know, it's all different kinds of structures, crystalline temperatures, fragility. And I just remember climbing with a friend who was really sketchy, really freaking out, really strung out on a long lead. And he started to quake. You know, and I could see him up there shaking and he started to pray to his Christian gods. And he was, pre- he was crying. And I just thought it was the funniest thing. <laughs> I just, I couldn't contain myself. <laughs> it was like, you know, it was, it was like Coen Brothers movie amplified. <laughs> uh, and that's the kind of headspace you have to get in. Yeah. It's absurd. You know, life is absurd. The situation absurd. Your decisions were absurd. The consequences are totally off the wall. And you can react with terror and horror, or you can just laugh at it. Yeah. And how, I don't know how, how do you, you get do to, it. how do you get to, yeah, that's what I want to, like, I want to help people get to where they're able to laugh at the worst things. And I don't know what the best way to go about that is. Like, how do you get to that place where oh, that's a good question. you laugh I think in I'll the face try of that. death? Exactly. I've been trying to do it. So I do say like brain training tunes your triggers. So clearly one thing is you want to tune the triggers away so that you're not triggered by fear and terror and horror and various other negative things. So you do want to have a certain equanimity as a basis, you know. I use hypnosis as a way to invoke people's terror and fear and voices and have them, or at least I ask them, to speak to them, to speak to themselves, to separate from their emotions and then encounter their emotions as separate personalities, because I believe they are, and then speak to them 
so you know you know who is the steve martin in you he's a ridiculous personality or, or, <laughs> sure. or you know the robin jerk. williams who <laughs> was a pathetic personality i would have to say since he ended up hanging himself so that combination of humor and tragedy is sort of where we're going how do you bring it out uh, i guess the answer is you have to see it in your life and you have to invite it to be present and then you have to make an arrangement for how you're going to align yourself or ally yourself with it so that it's not one of these monsters that's lurking somewhere in your past or your lineage or your culture i do say that demons are are malevolent entities that have a message to deliver to you they're malevolent they're unhappy you're not going to make friends with them they don't want your help and they're not going to be your friend but they have a message to deliver to you and you have to encounter and accept that message what is that message message of hopelessness hopelessness tragedy grief it's a message it's not who you are it's not who they are they're just demons they're delivering you a message from a kind of hell and it's an educational message how do you take it and how do you appreciate it i see these are all very contradictory we're on the path for i guess you'd call enlightenment of sorts liberation certainly and it involves engaging with what you want to not be or what you in your lineage have been you know bad human features how do you overcome bad human features well you have to heal them and you you know as, as a medic you know you don't heal things by denying them and being uninvolved you get your hands dirty dirty is not the right word you get your hands covered in blood of a kind yeah it's not you know the, these the implications of these words is so full of negativity but it's healing right so you know you get involved and sometimes you succeed and you try to succeed and there are all kinds of obstacles like infections and trauma and, and decay and stuff so you get involved you get involved with the dirt you get involved oh one of the people i interviewed the youth in my outdoor segment of this book said in her nature training they taught her to build shelters and keep warm with nothing by creating a big pile of leaves and burying yourself in the leaves as a way to stay warm and she said i you know she buried herself in these leaves and she had all these dreams of the sufferings of her friends and she said i learned so much being in that pile of leaves which is a very important thing it's not by going to school it's not by getting degrees it's not by you know being recognized it's just by in her case spending a night freezing in a pile of leaves you have to be open to that and so here i am i'm speaking from the the point of view of a penitent almost i sound like a penitent you know that i have something to make up for 
But that's been my experience. You know, I've learned the most in every group that I've been thrown out of. You graduate not with a degree, you graduate with a kick in the ass. That's when you know you've learned all you have to learn from that group when they throw you out. Uh, not necessarily all, but all they have to teach you. I've still got a lot to learn from these groups, but I'll have to take it my own, my own way. Sorry, that's the best I can answer. No, I think it's a, I mean, a thorough answer, if not comprehensive, right? I appreciate it. I think I have a friend who likes to say that hurt people hurt people and healed people heal people. Mm -hmm, There's mm -hmm. a process that you have to go through, right? Like if you haven't had the experience of being able or even witnessing someone else laugh in the face of danger or whatever you want to say about it, it's unimaginable. That mystery is terrifying to you and we've been taught and evolved to fear the places where the dragons are, right? And all of the from the literal to the highest metaphorical levels. And I just think that maybe the way forward is to embody some of that way of being for people to witness so that they don't have to imagine it for themselves for the first time. Like I take my kids on a roller coaster and they're terrified and I laugh the entire time. And by the third time that we ride the roller coaster, they're laughing right along with me. Unimaginable to them that their bodies could fly through space that fast and absolutely terrifying. But it doesn't take a whole lot of times on the roller coaster riding with dad laughing like a maniac before they're laughing like a maniac too. Well, I try to do that. I mean, that's easy. And it's fun. And I agree with you. And, you know, so, so, you know, mountaineering and climbing can do that too in a nice day, something that's scary with a lot of support and encouragement. You can get over it and feel very accomplished, satisfied with yourself. It's a little harder with self-destructive people who are recreating for themselves their legacy of hurt through other hurted people, hurtful people. So you could turn that aphorism around say that hurtful people start the healing process too and so i what i'm trying to do with those people is i'm trying to say you have to talk to your hurt you have to you have to pers more than personalize personify it you have to make it into you have to see it as the person that it is your hurt injured self-injurious person has something this is i'm getting back to what i said before it is demonic it is not happy. It is not going to be a friend of yours, but it has something to tell you. You know, your hurting self has something to tell you. You can do something for it. Maybe it'll go away. Maybe it will take its message or feel satisfied that it, you've got the message, but it's trying to tell you something. So it, and it's like, you know, AA says, I'm not a big AA supporter, but you have to go to the bottom, right? You have to get to the bottom, at least of the message. If you're torturing and hurting yourself, I say, turn around and stop running from it and head straight toward it. You could use the support, I would advise, of a counselor to tell you, you know, to hold the rope in that sense, to tell you when enough is enough and, you know, you can take a breather think about something else for a week, but to encourage you to encounter what your negativity is exfolding. I mean, it's like infection. It's got to come out. You know, so I don't know. It sounds like bullshit. <laughs> if you, you know, take it too literally. But if, you're, think, uh, if you're in it, 
it may make more sense. Well, you know, you get an infection and you need to lance it, right? You got to cut it open. And they, they call surgery the diabolical art because like the Greek root for diabolos was tear apart or pull apart or split something, right? So you split something open and you're talking about demons and, you know, narcissists and, you know, mean, evil people to some degree still have something to teach you. You know, cutting somebody with a knife is generally illegal until you have a medical license to do it in a very specific way. And then you wind up, you know, stitching them back up afterwards in a very specific way. And the the opposite in the Greek, from what I understand, is sumbulion, is putting back together or stitching back together where we get our word symbol from. So the opposite of, you know, diabolical in like old Greek etymology isn't, you know, divine, it's symbolical. Mm-hmm. And I think that's the, you know, the symbolic art. We, we've got lots of surgeons who know how to cut things apart and then stitch them back together in a literal way. But doing that sort of work at higher levels, if I can call them higher levels, or doing that sort of work for a whole person rather than just for the material piece that they inhabit that seems a lot more complicated than getting the the medical license to, you know, handle a complex polytrauma in a war zone on a forward surgical team like your friend Dave Williamson. Well, that's where I have to stop because I have a client and I've got to talk to him. Literally. <laughs> and we have to pick this conversation up again. I would love that. You know, you started not knowing where we're going and we're ended not knowing where we're going. And I guess that's the right way to be. We pulled a whole bunch of things apart and we'll stitch them all back together on a different episode. Yeah, let's do it. I'm the best as a therapist when I know the least. Maybe I'm the best at everything when I know the least. Paradoxes on paradoxes on paradoxes. Well, that's the creative thing. You know, it's chaos. If you want to... Oh, the last thing. The real definition of information is chaos really you know something that can't be structured cannot be that's, reduced that's where we'll pick up in part two with dr lincoln stoller is how chaos is information let's do it <laughs>